0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tear House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we're presenting an interview with Kazim Ali, led by Mahmoud Ababani. My name is Shazia Hafiz Ramji, and I'm a research assistant for the Tear House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Kazim Ali talks about his book, Northern Light, Power, Land, and the Memory of Water. In this memoir of his Canadian childhood, Kazem returns to the forests and waterways of Genpeg, Manitoba, a community changed by the building of a hydroelectric dam on the Nelson River where he grew up as a child. Kazem discusses the complex work of positionality and settler complicity in the environmental destruction caused by the dam on Cross Lake, as well as parallels on differences he's experienced and observed working in the Middle East. Mahmoud Ababneh is pursuing a Ph.D. in English Literature at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 Territory. His research centers around trans-indigenous and post-colonial literatures, decolonization, and settler colonialism. Mahmoud is currently teaching at Bow Valley College, and his work has appeared in the Journal of Holy Land and Palestine Studies. Kasim Ali was born in the United Kingdom and has lived transnationally in the United States, Canada, India, France, and the Middle East. His books encompass multiple genres, including the volumes of Poetry, Inquisition, Skyward, which is a winner of the Ohioana Book Award in Poetry, The Farm Mosque, which is a winner of the Alice James Books New England and New York Award, The Fortieth Day, All One's Blue, and the cross-genre texts Bright Felon and Wind Instrument. His novels include the recently published The Secret Room String Quartet, and among his books of essays are the Hybrid Memoir, Silver Road, Essays, Maps, and Calligraphies, and Fasting for Ramadan, Notes from a Spiritual Practice. He is also an accomplished translator and an editor of several anthologies and books of criticism. After a career in public policy and organizing, Ali taught at various colleges and universities, including Oberlin College, Davidson College, St. Mary's College of California, and Europa University. He is currently a professor of literature at the University of California, San Diego, and his newest books are a volume of three long poems entitled The Voice of Sheila Chandra and A Memoir of His Canadian Childhood, Northern Late, which is a finalist for the 2022 Lamy Award in LGBTQ Nonfiction and a winner of the 2022 Banff Mountain Book Award for Environmental Literature. We hope you enjoy this conversation between kazim Ali and Mahmoud Ababne. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Hello, Kazim. How are you?
3: I'm good. How are you?
2: (laughs) I'm good. Thanks for coming here today. It must have been a long flight.
3: It was a long... It was not a long flight, but it was was not a long flight by chronology, but it was a long flight from the south, the warm south, to the cold north.
2: You came from San Diego to Calgary. Yeah,
3: so it feels longer than it was. It was only two hours and change. It was actually a short flight. It is, actually. If you think about it, compared no to the type of flights that we take as yeah. transnational people, global migrants, <laughs> wandering across the planet in search of what, why did we come here? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Tell me about your first impression upon landing and this morning and with the beautiful weather in Calgary.
3: Oh, well, I mean, it, is, it does remind me of the weather of, you know, as as you know, I grew up in Manitoba and in farther north than that, so... Um, and I've been to Calgary as a child, so I did remember the cold. And I love the West in general. So yeah, I'm happy, happier to come here than you know to go to the East Coast to one one of those you know big metropolitan type of places. I've lost my taste for uh, New York and the, the, the that kind of <laughs> the the metropolis. <laughs> I think I'd rather be I'd rather be in the West do you like snow um not no not really (laughs) i mean i you know i as i was telling you earlier i think you know for me the winter was always fun as a child because how does a child experience winter skating tobogganing sledding snowshoes i mean everything's fun you know and for us when we were kids that's what we used to do and go riding on the back of the snowmobiles but a grown person walking through the cold to go to work? No, no, no thank you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> as I said, if you were taking me skating this morning, I would have been, you know, ready to go. <laughs> That's the fun stuff. So I think if I did live in a cold climate, I would probably I would probably be doing that every day. I'd be on an ice, I'd be on a rink. I'd be on an ice rink, yeah.
2: And I think this, uh, like uh, your experience as a child in the winter, in Winnipeg and different parts in the north of Canada, and it's it, it it we can see that in some of your writings. And speaking of your writings, you I'm looking now at your website. I noticed that you write poetry, you write nonfiction, you write fiction, translations, edited works. I
3: do a lot of different things, yeah. And <laughs> I'm, I'm
2: wondering is like the process different to approach each genre? Like when you write poetry, do you feel like you approach it in a different way than when you write, for example, a translation or edited works or fiction?
3: Well, it's any kind of writing is always a process of discovery. I think that uh, in a poem, when I begin, I don't ever know where it goes. It always begins in sound or a phrase or an image or something that has come to me or a mood. And then I kind of have to follow it. and I don't know the subject. I don't know anything about it, you know. That's very different from nonfiction when when one begins with a frame or one begins with the topic. you know, the question of topic to me doesn't does not come in poetry. or in fiction really, because even if in fiction for me, I think it begins with character. It begins with, I mean, the only reason I would write a story versus writing a poem is that the character who is not me comes, oh, I want to write about someone who is going through this, or someone who's thinking that, or something to whom this particular thing has happened, and then I kind of follow that. So I suppose the difference in approach is different for each, but they do share in common that sense of not knowing. I mean, I don't know where the character will lead me in a a work of fiction or what it will be about by the end. Similar even with a piece of nonfiction. When I went up north to Cross Lake, I didn't know what I was gonna find there. I did not know what I I was going to be writing. I knew I would be writing, but I didn't know know, where it would take me. And it unfolded over the course of the week itself.
2: Do you have a favorite genre then? Do you feel like yourself more kind of expressive or like you feel you express yourself better in a certain genre than the another, or you feel like?
3: No, I think that fiction for me is more of a game. It's more, it's like playing a game, like of cards or a board game or something. It's fun. It feels, it entertains even me, you know, in a way. And I would say that um, nonfiction and poetry for me the stakes feel different maybe that feels more serious you know the most fun quote-unquote fun I had is when I worked on a young adult um, interactive uh, fantasy book for a choose your own adventure series it was just like you know joyful you know because I was just playing around and inventing all these scenarios and you know writing nonfiction is very different than that and writing poetry feels almost vocational to me. It's not to say that those things don't also bring me pleasure, but I think the relationship is a little different.
2: Speaking of serious writing, (laughs) and I want to talk today about, in particular about, we'll talk about many things, but I'm in particular interested in your book, Northern Light, Power, Land, and Memory of Water. Yeah. Because when we think of serious, this book is serious. When I read it, it's about many things including a question that you posed in the very beginning about how hard it is to answer a question like where are you from?
3: Yeah. Because
2: in in the book you briefly talked about your history, the history of your parents who came from India and Pakistan then you concluded with it's hard to feel like I am from a place that I have such limited access to either culturally or physically. I believe here you are referring to your inability to visit cities of your parents and the grandparents back then. Yeah. I wonder if you would like to talk a bit about this question and your struggle to answer that.
3: Well, I think most, most migrants are, we call them immigrants, meaning they've come here and now they're, they're rooted here. But it really isn't true, and I think that might be the anxiety of white America and white Canada That it isn't true. And to an extent, they are correct. I mean, we may, those people come here, but those connections to the country that was left behind, they could be, you know, extremely present tense in terms of the extended family is there. Um, Or in the case of my family, where most most of the family has is now in the west but there's still cultural connections linguistic connections the connection of nostalgia period and when one loses access to where one came from in the case of a re, you know a refugee who cannot return or maybe in the case of a you know Palestinian diaspora where they have lost their right of return Um, Or in my case, being an Indian Muslim and the home country has become so, you know, politically vexed and hostile that it's actually become structurally difficult for me to return with new visa rules. I, I still can go, but what is happening there has kind of cut me off from that sense of connection. So I think that is the challenge for anyone who is a migrant. And then coming to Canada in our case, or coming to the United States, you come into the new country and you feel, you know, grateful or passionate about accepting that sense of belonging um, to, be, to be a part of a new place. But as I discovered, as we all are in the process of discovering, we, meaning we migrants, are in process of discovering that we've arrived in settler Nations. So we're on one side of this national story called Canada, and the indigenous communities of Canada are on the other side of it. And we actually have more access and more um, political a- political access and economic access and structural access to this place called Canada because the terms that we came into it by, that a lot of times more access than do indigenous people who are in this continent, you know, because of all of the structural um, differences between our, our presence here on this, on this continent. So that became a supreme irony. And it's part of the story of Northern Light. It was not only discovering the truth of the dam that was being built, but it was also contending... With being a migrant family and on top of that being a brown migrant family a non-European migrant family here in this place. As I say at some point in the book fliply the other kind of Indian yeah. you know that neither of us were supposed to be in white Canada you know what I mean um, but, but although white Canada had been much more welcoming to South Asian migrants than historically to first nations and inuit and metis people in north america
2: that strikes me when i was reading or actually when i was getting ready for this interview and planning my questions i i'm just again i'm looking at the, the your website and how it starts by talking about in the preface to this book or in the short like blurb about the book in your website it says like it's about the child of South Asian migrants and at that point and when I read a little bit more about it I was expecting some kind of you will be the center of the story and what you faced in in a white space like Canada or in America and I relate to those stories however I was pleasantly surprised that it's more about your part as a settler in and your participation in this whole process because you talked about your dad being an engineer in hydro in building the dam as you mentioned mm-hmm. and i thought that was absolutely fantastic because you are not centering yourself as in as we read always in migrant literature and being exiled and facing racism you i'm sure we we all face as non white people certain types of racism, but you took it to that level of talking about you uh, as a settler. I'm just wondering if you'd like to expand a bit more on that. And particularly, you talked about your father being building and building the dam for yeah. our listeners, who particularly who didn't read the book. And I really recommend that book. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Well, the book changed as I was writing it. My oh, My first intention was to write a book about it was not even to write a book, frankly. It was I was just wanting to write about my childhood and the strangeness of growing up in that really small little town. It was it was seven streets. There were six horizontal kind of east west streets, and then there was a north south street that cut them um, and connected them. So it was like a little uh I don't know like a fish skeleton, you know, with the 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 streets coming off of the the street in. That ran down uh, the west side of town. Actually, they ran. They ran from it. I was doing some Google research because I wanted to find out more about the dam. I wanted to find out about the technical specifications, and you know, I thought it would be interesting to kind of juxtapose the more dry mechanical accounts of this dam against the yeah, there's the picture of the town against um, my childhood memories. But when I learned about the occupation, the 2014 occupation of the dam site by the Pimichikamak Cree Nation, and then learned about the uh, kind of political struggles to get the provisions of the 1977 treaty called the Northern Flood Agreement to get those treaty provisions honored, that's when I wrote to the chief and said, I need to know more about this, you know. Can you send me information? Can we talk on the phone? And she did not answer. If you read the book, you'll you'll read this uh, account of my in- initial interaction with Chief Kathy Merrick, who's no longer Actually, I have a question about that. Yeah, she's not <laughs> currently the chief, but she yeah. was she was the chief then. And she said, "Oh, you know, you should come up. We'll show you around. We'll explain everything to you." And it, it was I thought I you know, she she was not brushing me off she was saying you know she was actually saying you need to come here and see it i can't give you the kind of knowledge that you are looking for you have to come here and talk to people and look at what's happened and we'll explain it to you and then the council the you know the council member who was sort of in charge of my visit said um you know we'll have the first night you're here we'll we'll do a sweat lodge and then you can, you know, we'll show you everything. And so there was a sort of sense of it automatically became something ceremonial and something momentous instead of just a casual visit because that sweat lodge happened at the beginning of it, you know, which was, that is not something that is often shared with outsiders. It, although there were two other men that were in there with me, and one of them was a reporter who was doing a story, and they must have said to him, you have to come into the sweat lodge. And the other was a guy who had started to work for the band. The band is the federal government designation. So he started to work for the band as an auditor in the finance department. So he was sitting there too. So I actually talked to both of them on my first night and said, so this is weird. We're all you know, non-Indigenous people and we're going to go into the sweat lodge with them. And the guy who worked for the band, he said, yeah, they don't, it's not normal to have outside people come in but when you are working with them they want you to do this because it's kind of you know part of such an important part of the culture they're sharing something and they're also it's like an initiation sort of in a in a, in a sense you know it was not an indoctrination it's not like anybody told me what to think or, it was just the ceremony itself which i describe a little bit in the book i don't describe it in great detail because precisely because that is traditional knowledge that is, you know, meant to be get, you know, taught by elders and not, you know, we would not go in and describe every single element of, of, of those, that type of, of ceremony. But when I went through that and then I spent that time, and actually in the book I only describe a single week, but I did go back. Um, as well, and plan to go back again. But I framed it narratively in the book as one single week, and I told the story of that week. And it changed, because it became less and less about me and more and more about the situation. But the next draft of the book was just that. I was barely in it. It was more of a reporting kind of situation. And the editor that I was working with, Daniel Slager, who's the um, US editor, he said, you have to put more of yourself into this. Like we want to have a more of the personal in there as well. That's when it started to be a balance between the two. And then it was the Canadian publishers. There was another US editor named Jim Schley. And then the Canadian um, publishers, uh, Suzanne Alexander um, and the people at Goose Lane, they actually said, um, because there's so much about Canada's history in here and people really don't know the history of this stuff. Like they don't know the history of the the um, the schools, the residential schools. They don't know the history of the Indian Act. They don't know the history of um, the 60, so-called 60s scoop, which did not solely take place in the 60s, of course. And so that they're, and they don't know the history of the number treaties either. A lot of people don't. You know, you say Treaty 5, Treaty 8, this and that but they don't know what that is and they don't know what it actually means. And so you have to explain all of that. And so that's when the third element of the book came in, which is the historical passages. So there's the historical stuff. There's there's sort of four different modes. There's the historical stuff. There's the more journalistic and political kind of critique. Then there is the, just the description of the people and the place and you know going around in in Cross Lake. And then there's my own musings about you know, being a migrant, not having a sense of home, all of that. And percentage-wise, of course, as you pointed out, that's really the smallest part. It is the framing, it's how the book starts, and it's how the book ends. But there's not a whole lot of it that in the middle. I I
2: have a note here saying in my, uh, between my questions is learning experience. And I wasn't sure actually that learning experience for me as a reader, or it was for you as an author, because you weaved all of this those things together so smoothly because you would uh, if you are reading the book you would see like certain personal parts and suddenly we are talking about the history of treaties or number the treaties then seeded yeah. land unceded land even you would, we would sometimes talk about the internal challenges for the community and the conflicts or disagreements <laughs> and I thought that was really really beautiful and the way it's done together is just so much educational for me and it answers so many questions to me without actually it answers how to think about your place here in canada and i thought that was that was absolutely
3: interesting thank you i appreciate that i really did want to show i i had a little bit of a conflict when i was thinking about writing about the divisions in the community the political divisions and the social divisions in the community because i felt I just felt worried that I might be presenting the community in a, a you know less than ideal light, but then I realized it is important for people to know all of what's happening in the community, all of the discussions, the the fact that there is that it is a very vibrant place politically and that there are disagreements about the best way forward. But the most important part is that those are people that are determining their own future. They're having discussions around all of these issues, and they still are in legal right of their land. That's part of what those treaties, those numbers treaties, number treaties meant. That is why there needed to be a treaty between the province and the federal government of Canada with the Cree Nation called Cross Lake Band um, in order to build the the dam in the first place. But lest anyone get confused about how much that political sovereignty is really worth to the province of Manitoba or the government of Canada, they broke ground on the dam two years before this treaty was signed. I mean, they knew they had to have a treaty, but they also knew they were gonna get it. And so you have to understand the power relationships between the First Nations communities and the government of Canada. In the first place, most of the First Nations communities in the northern part of Canada, including the Pimichikamak for sure, did not have military traditions or any tradition of territorial acquisition. So they came at those discussions, and I'm talking back in the 18 whatever, or the 17 when when there was the first interactions, they had a completely different mindset around what those interactions meant. And when those number treaties were signed, They also, they had a different concept of what they were talking about, and they also had a a different way of transmitting their laws, and so a different relationship to the written. Whereas the English government was saying, we're going to write it down, the Queen's going to sign it, or the King is going to sign it, and that actually makes it real in the world, enforceable by our military which the First Nations didn't have. So when they went into the negotiations on the treaties in the first place, they were thinking in a certain way, and that is the analog of that fast forward 200 years to the 1900, you know, late 20th century, not late, but like 60s and 70s, when all of the provinces were trying to harness the hydroelectricity and were doing their negotiations with the First Nations people, the First Nations were thinking, okay, well, They're definitely going to build the dam, anyways. So what can we get out of it? They were all thinking strategically, and for some of them, it worked out maybe a little better. In the book, I talk about Quebec Hydro and uh, Hydro Quebec and and the and the First Nations and Inuit communities in Quebec and how they handled their negotiations. And it they gave up more, and it worked out better for them. But they did give up more, and the Pimatchikamak gave up less, and they got less. And they got less than what they were told they were gonna get. And the environmental damage that occurred because of the dam was greater than what the original mitigation plans had assumed it would be. Even the premier of Manitoba at the time that it was built came out later. He, Ed Schreier, who became governor general of Canada, he himself came out against future hydroelectric development. Uh, he said, it's not, it's not efficient, it's not practical, it's too expensive, we shouldn't be doing more of it. You know. So um, what the future holds, it's impossible to say. I don't know.
2: The the dam that was built yeah. in that area. Yeah, it's
3: still operational. Yeah. Lived
2: uh, an impact on that landscape. Yeah. And you talked about that in your book also, Northern Lights. I'm just wondering if you would like to share with us what did you see on the grounds, particularly when we talk about GenPEG yeah. and even if you look at the cover of the book you would see like two images like to show the kind of difference between the landscape before and after I'm yeah. if I would like to talk a bit about that
3: well some shore erosion is natural in any water system of course but Jackson Osborne is the, the local elder whose arm appears on the cover of the book he's made it since the late 80s His own father was one of the original surveying team. Manitoba Hydro sent survey teams north in 1964 to study the water levels in the northern part of Lake Winnipeg to see if there was a way to alleviate seasonal flooding in the south. And as a result of that, they dredged a second canal between the northern part of Lake Winnipeg and Cross Lake So the dredging of that canal impacted um, the potability of the water in Cross Lake and also affected sturgeon spawning patterns. But when they dredged that canal, it increased flow to the Nelson. That's what alleviated the southern flooding that had been happening. And when they did that, they realized that that particular site, which is on the Cross Lake Indian Reserve, has about a 20 foot drop on its way to the Hudson Bay. And that would be a good site for for a hydroelectric um, facility. So when they built it, it vastly increased the shore erosion of of actual cross lake. And one of the other things that happened was, so that's affected vegetation and um, trees, tree life, and it's affected the animal life like the grebes, um, who are the birds that build their nests on the water, the beavers, of course. And then that those impacts, between the sturgeons, the grebes, and the beavers, then those impacts were felt up and down the food chain. So then hunting became a little different and trapping became a little different. So these are people in the far north who lived, you know, fairly traditional, sustainable, connected to the land lives, even in far into the 20th century. Where they were hunting, trapping, fishing, skinning, tanning—you know what 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 agricultural uh, practices exist in the far north? They were doing that too, and raising the things that can be raised up there. It's not that people people didn't actually have jobs the way we think of them now. You, you know, you're going to you know a graduate student. And my you know father is an engineer. My mother is an accountant. People do all these different things. It was a different kind of life that then, of course, was had previously been impacted by colonialism, doubly impacted by the residential school system, and now triply impacted by the dam that interrupted all of those um, traditional cultural practices. So it's not only the landscape itself, also logging, um, the Canadian logging industry has impacted the landscape. So that, that kind of climate, cha- climate change, and I'll put it in quotes, is, is on the micro level. It's not planetary climate change, it's local ecosystem climate change, yeah. but it's been significant. Yeah. The lake water is also no longer drinkable yeah. because all of the extreme shore erosion and full of spiders. And the dredging, yes, and the dredging of the canal both affected the silt levels. And so ironically, Norway House, which is farther south, the silt levels was, were not affected as greatly, but the cross lake water, it's not drinkable anymore used to just be able to drink out of the lake just like that and um, other pollutants aside but now it has to be heavily uh, filtered and the spiders you talk about are when the tree roots get pulled into the lake so then it actually becomes treacherous for boats so the life on the water has also been interrupted and it's become quite treacherous
2: yeah and you not only visited the dam and the lake, and you, you didn't only survey those places to, to observe the changes. You lived with the community and you had many, like uh, in, in the book you told many stories, and one of them I think is when you visited the school. Yeah. But before that, I'll go back a little bit, when you decided to visit the community, it's because you, when you started researching the community after many years, of leaving it as a child, when, because when you, when you left there, you were a child. I was a child, yeah. Yeah, and then you started suddenly when you were, I think, in Ohio to research the community. Then some of the stories that showed up on the search engine was like about the suicide and the emer- like the mental health crisis there. And then you decided to, I think, to leave at that moment, as you mentioned in the book. And you went to a school. And you talk to the principal and the teachers. They have different challenges than what we have in urban places like Calgary and other places. Would you like to talk a little bit about the challenges of those schools, uh, particularly the principal with the resources mm-hmm. and funding and the, uh, the old uh, hockey rink and all yeah. of these things? Yeah.
3: Well, they are struggling to, first of all, protect the students. There was. It, so there was a suicide epidemic in Cross Lake several years ago, and CBC's Fifth Estate actually did a really um, good program on it that uh, folks can find on, on YouTube quite easily. Um, but they instituted First Nations studies classes so they can start to teach Canadian history from their their own viewpoint instead of the kind of Europe, European-centric viewpoint. They've also instituted Cree language classes and they started at K um, kindergarten level with the intention of um, adding a year each year so that in a certain number of years the entire K-12 through 12 education would be in Cree language. So when I was there I think they were at third grade of that plan so they must be however many. That was five years ago that I was there, five, five and a half years ago. So I have to look back in and see how they're doing. I did visit the high school. Um, I did go back and visit the, I went back and visited the high school before COVID, and then during the pandemic times, I did a Zoom meeting with um, with the classroom. They're reading Northern Light. A lot of the students there were telling me they're reading Northern Light in their First Nation studies classes, and a lot of the students told me that they learned about so many of these things that impacted Cross Lake from my book that they hadn't learned about it until then. So that to me, it felt that, you know, that felt significant in that that is the extent to which the history of, you know, colonization and the impacts of colonization is not told. And it's, there's a reason it's not told. It's not told because we, maybe we don't really want to think about it (laughs) with all of our comforts and all of the different, you know, benefits that we have. It's, it's easier not to think about it, you know? And thinking about it means than actually contending with it. But I think one of the really important things that I learned is that the colonization of Canada isn't something that just happened and ended. And it didn't end when the last residential school closed. It is actually an ongoing process. I mean, every time we flip the lights or turn the power on somewhere. You know, the dams, the hydroelectric, electricity in Canada, those dams, they're all on indigenous land and they're all on treaty land. I mean, all, I don't know if they're all, but they're mostly they are. And if you look at a map of First Nations in Canada, and then you overlay on top of that map, a map of all of the hydroelectric projects in Canada, it's gonna line up. So that that is one huge, I mean, this is an energy state and where a lot of that energy comes from you know the mining wealth of Canada comes from is is from it's from indigenous treaty land in fact the position in parliament the portfolio of the minister in the prime minister's government of Canada to this day is who deals both with the first nations and with mining and and all it's called northern affairs because that because that's what that position has traditionally been it's been how to exploit the, they, they these, these pay, areas.
2: They don't even pay less for electricity, I think you mentioned that, for that community, even though their resources are being used. Right, They right. still, they don't even, I think they promised them to pay
3: subsidized. There was supposed to be subsidized mm. energy, revenue sharing, there's <laughs> all kinds of things in there. But when push comes to shove, and the people who are supposed to be trained to, to do the work, yeah. that would have been a whole separate thing I mean if you had a, a town of 6000 or 8000 I forget how many people live in the Cross Lake Reserve the, speci- the 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 town part of it and then the dam is about 40 minutes away if it was staffed you know completely by indigenous engineers and that would be a whole other thing
2: talking about this and talking about colonization is ongoing I need to talk a little bit about that because there is a small detail in your book talking about when you were in that the panel. There was a conference before you flew to the community. Oh, Boston, community. Boston. Oh, yes, Massachusetts, a, yes. Salem. It was Salem Post, yes, Festival, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that panel that talks about the role of the artist. Mm-hmm. in, And particularly we are in academia when we talk about because we teach that colonial, colonialism is ongoing and we teach that that makes us always political. Mm -hmm. because we talk about politics. Because you cannot talk about these things without being political. Do we have the luxury to be not political? I don't think...
3: Well, it isn't political. It's not political for someone who lives in Cross Lake. It just is. So I guess I had to change it from thinking about it as being political to realizing it is actually not. It's social... It's part of the ordinary. It's not separate from...
2: So, But it, it then you are saying it turns out to be called political because people just want to avoid it because it's political. But it's actually not. Is that what you're saying?
3: Well, I mean, there's two ways of thinking about it. One way of thinking about it is you can say everything is political. We were talking about food earlier, and I said... I miss the Arab style of coffee. And when I was in the West Bank and drinking the kind of Turkish style, Turkish, Arab, you call it different where you are. And then in Israel, they say Israeli coffee. So you can say that's actually political. (laughs) So using the adjective is, is, is kind of a political statement or a claiming of Israeli identity as an indigenous identity as well. Whatever you think about that, one way or the other, it's become political, in a sense. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Versus if we want to start talking about Manitoba Hydro and the impact of the dam on the local ecosystem, to somebody, to us living you know, in Calgary or people who are living in Winnipeg, we might think of that as a political issue because it's far away and it's distant. But for a person who's in it, who lives there it's ju- it is as much a part of their life as anything else so saying it's political can be a way of dismissing it the importance of it actually so you talked
2: about palestine in certain places particularly when you want to explicate a bit more on what you noticed within the indigenous communities or when you were talking to them and you were talking about your uneasy or, let's say, adventurous, because you said I'm used to adventurous travels. And then you mentioned Palestine and your stay in Palestine. which In which ways you found, you found like these comparisons <laughs> between Palestine and indigenous communities here in Churchill Island?
3: Yeah, well, first I want to say something about the adjective adventurous because I didn't mean to imply it was, you know, I didn't mean to be lighthearted about that, But there is a truly, there is truly a certain amount of danger and just getting through the border control at the ben airport is, it can be very challenging. You can be, you can be turned away and sent back. Um, I spent about seven hours being interrogated by four different officers just to be able to pass into the country. And, you know, they wanted to know where I was going, who was I seeing, what organizations would I be working with, like all of these different kind of things. And as soon as one person finished talking to me, they would leave and another person would come in and ask me the very same questions. I had to go through it all again. I mean, it's a psychological um, interrogation technique, you know, of course, to see how I'm gonna react. Somebody's watching me on camera as well, you know. So um, there is that, and then- But what were they afraid of? What is that? What
2: were they afraid of?
3: Well, they want to They want to know if people are going into the West Bank. They want to know who people are working with. They asked me to open my email and show them invita- the, whatever the invitations were. Um, they wanted to look at my text messages. On my way out, there's also an exit interview. They wanted to look at my pictures. I mean, it's a whole situation, you know. And um, the Palestinian organizations that I was working with were very clear with me where they said you know, you can't say the specific person's names, you can't, you know, tell all the different details. And um, a lot of it was about the fact that it is still an occupied place, even after Oslo Accords with the different zones of control, the, you know, different, you know, activists and organizers are still targeted. And you just hear about on the news, even now you hear about Um, the occupation forces going into the zone A areas and arresting people, detaining them, shooting them. Um, That is all still happening. So um, when I said adventurous, I meant, you know, actually not quite as a simple thing to do, to just get on a plane, go there, go where you're going and, and, and do what you want to do. It's not like that. And the people who are actually there on the ground do not have freedom of movement. They need to provide... Uh, you know, if they want to cross over into Jerusalem, for example, it's like the equivalent of crossing an international border for them, even if, say, some people from in their family live on the other side of that. And even within the West Bank, of course, there are internal checkpoints that you one has to pass through as a Palestinian. There are Israeli roads that run without any checkpoints, and then there are the particular Palestinian roads. So it's like a separate, separate system. People get testy when you say apartheid, but... Um, there is a There are separate roads, separate buses, different types of license plates, and so my own students that were coming to study with me, I was teaching in Ramallah, and they would be coming from a village south of Bethlehem. It would take them about two hours to travel that. Some 30 miles probably. I don't know what that is in kilometers. 50 kilometers? I think I'm close. So.
2: Those images come to your when you visited the yeah. indigenous community. Well
3: here. it was the same and particularly
2: here. when you talked about when uh, Chief Cathy like put the signs about missing and murdered. Yeah, US yeah. People, then you recalled yeah. that you saw that in Palestine because yeah. I feel like they would do
3: graffiti on the buildings. If there was a martyr, if there was someone who was killed, they would do, do a graffiti of the the person's face on the building. But here, too, in Canada, at one point in time, indigenous people did not have right of travel. There was a pass system and you had to kind of, to go from one community to the other, you had to take the pass. And then, you know, the Saskatchewan River, which we are not far away from, what used to be an indigenous highway across the continent, you just get in your boat and go down the, it was like getting on the freeway and going down to the next community. And then that became cordoned and policed, and you couldn't just go from one place to the other if you were a First Nations person. Now, of course, it's, it's completely hemmed off, and it's not at all what it used to be, you know? And so a lot of those communities that had had commerce and transit for many thousands of years were all cut off from each other and culturally isolated from each other as well. There is a culturally contiguous archeological evidence of culturally contiguous Cree presence all across the north of Canada from coast to coast going back something like twelve thousand years that's the archaeologist named will gilmore from the university of wisconsin who came up here and did that research that one of the guys in the book daryl Seti, actually worked with him um, and we talk about i talk a little bit whenever i talk about this book i always say we even though i wrote it <laughs> but it's like we like me and the because so much of it is a reporting from the people in cross lakes so that there i i report their words a lot so it feels like a we kind of book and there was an indigenous editor named Rhonda Kronick who worked on the book with me as well and gave many suggestions and revisions that helped make the book into its present form
2: people in the community so asked, it is a we <laughs> <laughs> Be, because people in the community have, even Leroy asked you and when you were always carrying your backpack with your Notebook, yeah. and pencil. Ask you. Everyone's "What are you like, doing? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. doing here? Yeah. What were you doing there? Yeah. Were you a journalist? Were you a writer? Right. Were you? What were you?"
3: Right. You're asking me now. Yes. Um, I think I was all of those things. I was thinking. I think I was every one. Every one of those things, um, because the responsibility of the journalist is to the truth of the story and to bring the story to people. That is not the responsibility of the poet. The poet's responsibility is to th- is to oneself maybe and to the word to the work, to the text. I don't think I was an ethnographer. I mean, the ethnographer's responsibility is to the institution <laughs> if he's from a university or to the government, if he's been sent by the government. And there is a way, as we all know well and have talked about, that ethnography and cartography both um, you know, are tool, were tools of imperialism and tools of colonialism. Um, the journalist and the poet came together, I think, in this book.
2: Did you find something there? Because you were looking for something. You were
3: looking for... Did I find something there? I left something there. Did you find it? At the end of the book. I let, you know, I... I, Yeah, the crane. The crane. I leave the book, and you leave the crane there. And people don't believe me. I mean, one of the things that happens when I go and read from this book and talk about it with people um, people think that that was symbolic that I still have the crane and they want me to show them the crane and I say, the crane is gone. The crane is in the lake.
2: <laughs> I, I didn't think of it as symbolic. It, it was I not symbolic.
3: Because you were not writing. <laughs> it, was, it was a symbolic act, but it but it, it, was also a real act. I mean, the crane is gone. Because you were not writing in symbols or like at that
2: no. moment. I felt like you were just narrating. What's, yeah.
3: what's happening? Yeah. yeah, I think people thought it was a... Because I, I really kept the crane. And the seagull and you yeah, know yeah. this just No, no, odd. the crane is at the bottom of the lake. If it's still a crane, it maybe has dissolved by now. Yeah. I don't know how long paper takes to dissolve in in a, in a lake.
2: Were you satisfied upon seeing Genpeg?
3: Um, well, there was a part of it that made me realize that the past that it didn't belong to me, that it never did. And there was another part of it that was pretty wild to go into that forest and kind of hear the sounds of the past, you know, like it just all comes back. That was very strange. And the second time I went back to Cross Lake, I also went over to Genpeg uh, on my own. And that was a little more, I felt farther away from it. The mm-hmm. first time I returned, it felt really immediate, really bittersweet, but really immediate. And the second time it felt, I don't know, less bitter, but also less sweet. It was sort of fading away. Isn't
2: the second time when you found that secret road, it was kind of hidden between oh, the well, bushes? Oh, well then,
3: you could say I've gone back three times. Oh, because okay. Because two times I describe in the book itself. Okay. But I went back again, again, After you found, yeah, yeah. After the time that is described in the book, I've been back to Cross Lake, another time, and was invited to go back, a third time. But then you know, COVID came in, so we didn't get to do it. But I will plan to go back probably in the summer, one summer. Are you going to write about it? I'm not sure. I mean, folks have asked if there will be a sequel to the book, and my answer, is mostly my answer is no, that the sequel whatever happens next is first of all it's up to every canadian person to learn about and think about and it's a situation that's been replicated of course all across canada including in british columbia right now the conversations that are happening about the dam there um but it's also the future is also for the people of cross lake so maybe i as an outsider went and wrote a book that these young kids in the school are saying, well, we learned the history of the, the place where we live. We learned about the history of it from your book. And so maybe the next book about Cross Lake will be written by somebody from Cross Lake. Yeah.
2: That's my hope. What's your next uh, project?
3: My, uh, so I am writing about what I was doing in the Middle East was that I was going to Palestine and I was teaching yoga teacher. I was t- teaching yoga classes and I was training yoga teachers. And several of my teachers are now running yoga classes of their own. And one of them has actually, um, two of them have, uh, several of them I should say, have gone and done additional yoga teacher trainings. But one of them is training teachers herself now. So I am trying to write about that.
2: When do you expect that to be out? Ah, I don't know. I'm
3: to so finish, already so
2: excited. Is. Maybe we should have another interview. About yes, that. let's
3: do it. I'll do it. <laughs> um, I want to finish the book by, you know, the summer. And then I don't, and it'll probably be another year before it was out. So maybe 2024.
2: 20, I'm looking forward to that one. I'm that will
3: inspire me to keep working on it.
2: Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Katemari. Thank you for being here today.
3: Thanks for chatting.
1: We hope you enjoy this conversation between Kazim Ali and Mahmoud Ababni. TIA House recognizes a generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also really appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stockel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Thank you so much for tuning in to Tea House Talks.